Good morning. Welcome. Welcome once again to North Haven. It's good to be here. Uh, my name is Adam Sidler. If you don't know who I am, I'm the uh, senior pastor here. Uh, it's certainly a privilege that I have. Um, and I want to not only welcome all those that are physically in the building, uh, but also welcome those that are watching via the live stream. Uh, welcome. Glad to have you a part of our church, and you are a part of our church. Uh, even though uh, you're only seeing me now, uh, there are others here in this place that um, uh, we would love to be together all in one room, but we understand that that's not uh, the reality right now. But what we're going to do, we did this once before, we're just going to, uh, we're going to pan this camera across. Matthew, how many people are watching the service right now? So we're looking at probably about 60, 65 people uh, that are probably watching and engaged with us via the live stream. Um, so we, you know, we have a, a good crowd here today. Uh, but let's remind ourselves and let's remind those that are watching the live stream that, that we're all together in this. So we're going to pan across the room and I want you to just wave, say hi to those that are uh, watching from their couches. Uh, say hi. Welcome. It's good to see you guys. Fantastic. We just, we just dismissed our kids and our students. They, uh, they're going off into their respective rooms. Hey guys, we miss you. Love to have you here. Um, when, hopefully when that, uh, things settle down, we get to some sort of normalcy. Uh, but we are into our second week of a series uh, that we're doing called Rooted. And now Rooted is a 10-week journey that we're committed to here as a church. And we've had upwards of 200 people that have registered to be a part of the Rooted experience. So this happens church-wide, like we're doing this as a church and uh, so for the, every Sunday morning over these 10 weeks, we're going to be tackling these specific individual topics. We'll get into the, the specific topic for today here in a little bit. But also with that are some daily devotions that um, those people that are in, invested and involved in this experience are pouring into. And that comes through this book right here. And this book uh, you get when you register for Rooted. Even though we're into week two, it's not too late to register. Because if you register now, you, you can be a part of a group, a small group experience, and uh, join in and really not be miss, having missed a whole lot. We met for the first time groups over this last week. Some group, groups met on Sunday night. Other groups met over the course of the week. And it was really a time to kind of get to know one another. To, uh, some groups have been uh, together for a while, and so they already know one another. Uh, but some new groups that started, you know, saying hi, introducing themselves, talking a little bit about the nuances of what to expect over the next 10 weeks. Uh, but this week is when we start getting into the meat and bones of uh, what this experience has to offer. Uh, so all that to say is it's not too late. So if you haven't registered, there are limited books. We're running out of the supply, um, so, but there still is a chance. But you're going to want to tackle that, grab that as soon as you leave here, um, and uh, we have those books available for you. Um, also, you can still join a small group. So on Sunday nights is when we have our experience. 
Um, so tonight, once again, we had upwards to 100 people that were together with us last Sunday. Uh, half of that were groups that have been together for a while, and the other half of that were new groups, meeting for the very first time. And so you can still be a part of one of those new groups. It's not too late, um, but we're going to do that again here this evening. And just to underline, underscore what I think is a profound impact with Rooted Um, I had an individual come to me this last Sunday night, right after our Rooted experience, and uh, we're walking out, and he's led this group, or been a part of this group now for a number of years, and so these people that are in this group, they've been together, they've talked, and they've worked through things, they know one another, and he told me, he said, tonight, I, people shared things that they've never shared before. We had an openness and a communication in our group that we've never experienced. So he was just excited about how this is going to just continue over the course of these 10 weeks. So I I couldn't be more thrilled. It's going to be fantastic. Now, one thing that I want to say before we dive into today's subject is that for any given Sunday, and I feel like I need to preface our time together by, by illuminating this, especially today because of the vastness of today's subject, um, but every time that we're together here in this, in this time, I get anywhere between 20 to 30 minutes to share with you what I feel God has laid on my heart, where he's kind of led me over the weeks and months and years, really, as we prepared for these divine moments. Um, But these times should be a springboard towards deeper understanding and pursuit of God and his word and others and his church. And and so um, I don't want these times to be the only way and means in which you experience spiritual food. If that's the case, then I feel, I feel bad for you because I'm not that awesome, all right? Uh, you need to dive into God's word. You need to pursue him in prayer. Uh, you need to pursue one another. That's how we grow. And so my hope is that in these times when we are with each other and I'm sharing with you like I am in this moment, that I'm, I'm spurring you, I'm inspiring you to dive even further into what God's word says about these things um, and, and how it is that we can grow as individuals and then as a church. So uh, that, that is really important today, especially because we're going to be looking at a question that is pretty profound and deep, and that is, who is God? Now, what we're not going to do, what we're not going to do is we're not going to ask the question, or rather answer the question, does God exist? We're going to assume God's existence here this morning. Now, God's existence, that question Does God exist? That's a super important question, and it could very well be the case that there's somebody here in this room who is wrestling with that question. Does God exist? Uh, Maybe you even have some semblance of faith, um, but you're really struggling with the reality or the truth of God's existence. Maybe you're watching via the live stream, and that's a question that you ask yourself, and that's a really important question. Does God exist? That is something that we should dive into. We should feel the freedom um, and we should have the courage to be able to tackle. Uh, Mortimer Adler in his book, Great Books of the Western World, he says this, more consequences for thought and action follow the affirmation or denial of God than from answering any other basic 
question. Now, there's a time and a place to dive into that question. There's an epistemology that's involved here, which is basically the, the study of thought, the study of philosophy, and to be able to work through the nuances of that, to, to dive into apologetics, be able to um, affirm a defense of God's existence, and to be able to work through that in a systematic way. Those are really important conversations, and we will have those conversations someday, but not today. Today, we're going to assume God's existence. And thus, we're going to ask the question, who is God? Who is God? Now, we are inundated, inundated with ideas, portrayals of God. Uh, you know, if, if you think of God, you, you, what might immediately come to your mind is an image maybe like this. Uh, you might see this in your mind of some bearded heavenly being that, that is looking benevolently over his creation in the clouds somewhere. Or maybe your image of God kind of conjures up something like this, where God is ruling over the world and he's looking almost uh, uh, firmly and authoritatively over his creation. Or maybe your image of God looks like something like this, because of pop culture, you know, Morgan Freeman, right? We, <laughs> we think of Morgan Freeman as God when we think of something like uh, 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 Evan Almighty, or what was the other one? Bruce Almighty. So God and who God is, we think of these images, and they are often the construct of our experiences, um, how we see God, how we interact with God is tied into our past, things that have happened to us, disappointments we, that we've incurred over the years, choices that we made, good and bad, all that stuff coalesces into this, this, this immediate image and idea of God's existence and how it is that he interacts with us. But what we're going to do today is we're going to look at specific attributes of God, and we're looking at these attributes specifically because they are laid out in God's Word, which is the, the authority as to who God, who God is, because that's how He's revealed Himself to us. So we got to come to grips with these attributes. So what are these qualities? What are these attributes that when placed together begin to make up the whole of who God is? Well, we're going to begin first by looking at what I would argue is his most important attribute, and that is God is holy. God is holy. Now, this is a word that we've heard many times and we use many times. I mean, we may use it in such trite ways as saying, holy cow, right? Or we, we sing the word holy. Um, it's a part of our vernacular in the church. Uh, we talk about living holy lives. But what does that word actually mean? When we say God is holy, what are we actually saying? Well, the word holy means set apart. And so when we say God is holy, we're saying God is set apart in that God is unique, that he's transcendent, that he is totally other, that we cannot, we cannot fully conceive of God because he is so beyond our ability of full conception. 
It also means that he is pure. So not only is he transcendent, not only is he totally other and set apart, but he, he is pure. He is untouched. He is not stained by the evil of the world. So God is totally and completely above his creation. And that includes us. It includes you and me. There is a God, and we're not him. Now this attribute of God is so important that it is mentioned three times in a row in Isaiah 6. Now this might seem trite at the outset, but bear with me. I'm going to get to a really important point. In Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to that. If not, it's certainly on the screen here. You can read with me. Isaiah 6, 1 through 4, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy. See, not only is God holy, God is holy, holy, holy. Now, why is that important to point out? Well, the Old Testament where we find Isaiah was written in what language originally? Hebrew. Hebrew is a Jewish language. It was written in ancient Hebrew. And when... You look at, at Jewish liturgy, whether it is in the Bible, in Scripture, in the Old Testament, or whether it's in the traditions of other writers, when you look at Jewish liturgy, a, 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 a grammatical tool that was used, much like we use grammatical tools here in, in modern day, when something is incredibly important, it is mentioned twice. It is mentioned twice. An example of this, Jesus was a Jew. He was living within a Jewish context. He himself, when he would say something twice, it was to emphasize its immense importance. So when he said things like, truly, truly, ears would perk up. They'd be like, oh, this is really important. It would be something like me saying to my kids, this is really important, right? Right? They would just be like, hmm, honed in. I'm going to listen. God does this too in the Old Testament when he, when he expresses a, a really increased level of intimacy, like when he says Moses, Moses, or Abraham, Abraham. But when something is mentioned three times in a row like that, holy, 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 it is off the charts important. Now, we're going to look at how the, the level of importance that God's holiness has, we're going to look at that in relation to the beauty then of our relationship with him here when we get towards the end of this message. But we can't fully recognize the beauty of our relationship with him unless we come to terms with his holiness, because when we consider a God who is completely set apart, who is totally other, 
He, he, he would have every conceivable right to remain that way. But he doesn't. And we'll see that here in a minute. So God is holy. Another important attribute is that God is innately present within humanity. This is really, co- this is really cool and crucial. God is innately present within humanity. Now I want to make a distinction here. When you and I decide to follow Jesus and to make him the leader of our lives, the Bible says that we are saved. And when we are saved, we are justified. What does that mean? That means that we are made right with God. When before salvation, we were apart from him. When we are saved, we are justified, and then we can have a right relationship with him. Now that comes at a point in your life or mine when we make that conscious decision to follow Jesus, to accept him as our Lord and Savior and decide to follow him. Now this is different when I'm about to talk about this innate presence within humanity because we were made in what? The image of God. We were made in the image of God and so God's presence is innately within us. That's not something we grow into. That is something that's intrinsic to us as God's creation. His presence is imprinted within us. Take, for instance, moral law. Moral law is often used as an example or a means of arguing God's existence, for instance. Moral law is the idea that within each of us we have a moral compass to get us to believe or behave rather a certain way. You can actually see that in little kids. When kids are around two to three, those of you who are parents or even grandparents, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, your kid grabs a cookie out of the jar or whatever, gets something or does something they're not supposed to do and you know that they did it and you ask them to fess up that you could see that moment right? You can see those gears moving where they're wrestling against that moral law that's intrinsic within them. They know that what they're about to do when they lie is wrong, but what does sin do? Sin sin is also with us. We have that sin nature that twists our reality and our approach to others and to God. But within each of us, we have that moral compass. Paul alludes to to this in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 through 15 where he says this indeed when gentiles and gentiles is basically the word the ancient word that's used to describe anybody who's not a jew so that if you are not jewish you are a gentile who do not have the law in that the law was given specifically to the israelites to the jews so the gentiles weren't given the law but even though they do not have the law they do by nature by nature things required by the law They are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. So we have this intrinsic presence of God in our lives, regardless of whether you are saved or not. And this innate presence of God, it transcends time. 
meaning that it's not more or less today than it was 2,000 years ago. It transcends nationality. This is true for us in the United States as much as it is for those in Togo, Africa. It, it, is, it transcends origin. It transcends culture. It is true for all humanity. So God is holy, and God is innately present within humanity. And another important attribute is this. God is the cause, not the effect. God is the cause, not the effect. Now, some of these are going to blur together, and we're going to get to this, uh, a, a part of this here in just a little bit. But I had an individual come to me after the service, and he, he asked me, he said, okay, so, so God has always been. I can't wrap my mind around that. I get it. I get it. There are things of God's reality that are so transcendent, that are so other, we cannot fully conceive God. That's what makes God, God. Because if we could fit God in a box, if we could fully explain and understand who God is and what he is, he would cease being what? God. God Being God means that he's always been, because if he was begun, if he was created, he would cease being God. Do you understand this? No one created God. Paul E. Little, in his book, Know Why You Believe, which is a fantastic book, I'd encourage you all to read that. Were God a created being, he would not be a cause. He would be an effect. He would not and could not be God. Creation exists because God put it into being. And as we mentioned earlier regarding his holiness, God stands apart from his creation. He is not the product of anything or anyone He sets all things into motion, and thus, because he sets them into motion, he is then the sustainer of all things. So God is the cause, not the effect. God is also personal. God is a personal God. He is not an inanimate object In Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 10, it says, But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God. He's the living God. The eternal King. When He is angry, that's an interesting moment. Because that's an emotion, right? That is is indication of feeling. What's also interesting here, too, is that God gets angry. Jesus got angry. Jesus did not sin. He was pure and blameless. Thus, anger, righteous anger, godly anger is not sin. Total side note. When he is angry, the earth trembles. The nations cannot endure his wrath. You see, God is an individual being. He's personal. And because he's an individual being, because he is personal, he has a self-consciousness and a will. He feels things. We see that all throughout Scripture. He chooses. We see that as well as he makes choices. And then he engages in relationships with other beings. Because he is a personal being himself means that he then can have relationship with other personal beings. 
So God is personal. Another wonderful attribute of God is that he is constant. He's never changing. And this completely goes against what we experience in everyday life. You know, you could be married to somebody that you would self-describe as a rock. My spouse is solid. He or she is a rock. They're not. They might be wonderful, but we are all prone to disappointment. We all disappoint people, and people disappoint us. That's the nature of fallen humanity. That's the nature of a fallen world. That's sin within us. This world and ourselves, we ebb and flow. We rise and fall. One day we're on the mountaintop, and one day we're in the valley low. This is our reality. We have a great day, and then the very next day, it's the worst day ever. This is our reality. This is our context. And so it's really hard then for us to conceive of a God who transcends that. A God who is constant, who never disappoints, who is always faithful, who is always true. It's hard for us to come to grips with that, isn't it? Because that's not the reality that we live in. And so what do we do? We base God on our reality rather than on who he is. So God is constant. This goes against the second law of thermodynamics, doesn't it? That part of the law refers to decay. It speaks to the reason why everything ultimately falls apart and disintegrates over time in that everything eventually changes, but God doesn't. In Psalm 102.27, it says, God, you remain the same and your years will never end. And this speaks to not only the, the, the consistency of God, that he is constant and that he never changes, but it also means that he will be that way forever. That that will never end. And if he will be that way forever, then he's been that way forever, for all time. And as he has been with you yesterday... He will be there for you today. And He will be there for you tomorrow. God will never leave you nor forsake you, the Bible says. He remains faithful and true for all time. And in all circumstances. So God is constant. God is also righteous. Now this is another kind of churchy word. It's actually a biblical word, but we've adapted it in the church and we've applied it to certain, certain things. But what does that actually mean? What does righteous mean? Well, it means that God's actions, that means what he does or doesn't do, they are in accordance and not in contradiction to the law that he himself has established. So the expectation, the standard that God has set, that is intrinsic to who he is. His life, the way that he, that he does things, the way that he interacts with us and the world is in accordance to the law that, and the standard that he's established. He doesn't demand that you and I live according to a standard that isn't intrinsic to himself. 
And because the law that he has established is intrinsic to his being, he then executes that law with justice and fairness. We may not always feel like it's fair, but that's because we're fickle, not because he's not righteous. God doesn't display any favoritism. He doesn't display any partiality, but instead administers his choices and his law fairly to all. He's righteous. And God is also benevolent. God is concerned with the welfare of his creation. Probably the most famous Bible verse of all time. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And a big part of God's benevolence is that he put his concern over his creation into action. He wasn't just a bystander. He wasn't just observing his creation and the predicament in which his creation resided. No, he put that benevolence and that concern into action by getting involved. And this gets us then to the most powerful and life-changing attribute. And it illuminates the awesomeness of God in light of his holiness. So as we talked about his holiness, he is set apart. He is totally other. He is God Almighty. And yet, even though he's set apart, even though he's the Almighty Holy God, transcendent and totally other, his concern and love for our well-being, for the well-being of his creation was so powerful that he put it into action and he got involved and executed what I think is the most beautiful and life-changing attribute of God, and that is this. God is Jesus, and Jesus is God. That's a big that's a big part of the salvation message. It's not only believing that Jesus lived and that he died on the cross, but it's that he rose from the dead. He defeated death. How did he do that? Because he is God. He was capable of doing that and did and provided a way and a means for us to have life. He came to us. God came to us when we could not come to God. I've talked about this numerous times, but it begs repeating because we are a fickle people and we forget we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every single day. There is this huge chasm between an almighty, holy God, totally other, totally separate, and an unholy, imperfect humanity. And no matter how much that humanity tried, they could not bridge that chasm to get to God, so God had to come to us. John 1.14, the Word became flesh, flesh and made His dwelling among us. When before the incarnation, that is God becoming man, before that being for, in the form of Jesus, no one could fathom, let alone actually hold God within the palm of their hand. We cannot hold God in a box. We not, cannot fully conceive who God is. But because of Jesus, we can actually hold the hand of God. That's incredible. 
as, I saw, as we saw earlier, there's so many different uh, depictions of God. Well, there are also just numerous depictions of Jesus. My wife and I, we had the privilege of going to Paris. And, of course, when you're in Paris, you're not only eating a lot of food, but you're also looking at a lot of old stuff. And, you know, the first few days, it's beautiful. You know, you go into these museums and you look at all these different paintings and, and, and you look at this architecture and you're just in awe. And then you get to the fourth or fifth day and you're like, yeah, okay, I've had enough. But there's so many depictions of Jesus. So many depictions of him in various scenes and situations that we read about in Scripture but there is one painting, and this, you're not going to find this. You're not going to find this in, in any museum in Paris. Uh, I actually need to get a print of this. I need to put this on my wall. But it, it is the most profound and beautiful image that I have seen of, of Jesus. But before we put it on the screen, let me just kind of paint the picture myself with some words. So there's this moment in Matthew, Matthew chapter 14, where the disciples are, are in a boat. And as the disciples are prone to do, they get themselves into trouble and they start worrying and, and, and fretting. And in the midst of that, they see a figure walking towards them, which wasn't a big deal instead, except for the fact that it was on water. And so this, this human being is walking towards them and they realize that it's Jesus walking on water. And Peter, Peter, you know, he just, Peter, 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 he makes all these great choices and then stupid ones, just constantly, right? Talking about ebbing and flowing. But Peter sees Jesus and he says, Jesus, if that's really you, then call my name and I will come to you. And so Jesus calls his name and Peter gets out of the boat and instead of going into the water, he begins to walk on the water himself. Imagine that for a second. Just imagine that if you would. You get out of a boat in the middle of the sea and you're actually walking on water. How incredible would that be? And I could just imagine the elation that Peter was experiencing in that moment. Locking eyes with the Savior, locking eyes with Jesus, and walking on water in the midst of a storm. But then what happens? Well, this happens in our lives all the time. We start looking out of our peripheral vision and we see the, we see the waves we start feeling that strong wind. We hear the thunder. We see the lightning. And we realize where we are. And we start to sink. That's where, what happened to Peter. He sinks and he goes into the water. Now this isn't a, just a swimming pool. This is, these, are, these are strong waves. This is, a, this is a horrible storm. And so Peter's life is in jeopardy. And what does he scream? What does he say as he's sinking down? He says, Lord, save me. And then we see an image like this of Jesus reaching down into the water. I love this image. Because this is a benevolent God. Jesus is God. This is the act of a benevolent God who even though He is holy, even though He is set apart, He doesn't sit idly by, but He gets involved because of His great love for God so loved the world. And He reaches His hand down and just as Peter reached up and grabbed the hand of God and was lifted out of the water, 
God affords that opportunity for you and for me to reach up and grab the hand of the living God and to be pulled out of that storm. If we want to know who God is, we need not look any further than Jesus. Because that's God involved in action and completely invested in rescuing his creation, you and me. Let's pray. Lord, I want to pray specifically right now for anybody in this room or anybody who's watching the live stream or seeing this as a recording later and is at a point, is at a crossroads where they're, they're wondering what does this relationship with, with Jesus mean? And why is that so important to me? And how can I trust this, this God that you speak of when everything around me, everything that I experience, the relationships that I have, it just lead me to not trust anyone or anything? Lord, I pray, I pray that eyes would be open, that the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ, the living God, having come to earth to die on the cross for our sins and to rise from the dead three days later, defeating death and thus providing a way for us to have life everlasting. I pray, Lord, that that would come into their existence and that those individuals would make a decision to follow you and to make you the, the, the leader of their lives. Lord, as they are being succumbed by the waves, as they're being overtaken by the storm, and as they're sinking down, I pray, Lord, they would look up and they would see the hand of the living God reaching down for them, inviting them to simply reach up and to grab hold and be saved. And I pray for the rest of us who have made the decision to follow you that we would live saved. That we would live in constant praise and thanksgiving for the life that we have because of you, because you have so graciously and benevolently loved us when you could have very easily just stood idly by you at every right as the holy God, as set apart, as transcendent, as totally other, but yet that wasn't enough. You reached down and you saved us. I pray that we would live lives worthy of that salvation. We love you and we pray this in your name. Amen. Don't forget to register for this book as we tackle that over the next uh, 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 well, few days in our small groups. And then um, once you meet with your small group, you start reading um, leading up to week three. And then also don't forget too, next Sunday, we're going to be together outside for our last outdoor service. It's going to be uh, fantastic, hopefully some great weather. Uh, we only have one service that day, 10 a.m. Uh, so join us for that. Until then, God bless.